One of the most um, embarrassing experiences that I ever witnessed, it was actually kind of terrifying, and I have a hard time telling the story it was so terrifying. It was one of those things. I was in third grade, and little Lisa Gauntlet, she had to give a presentation, and she was one of those kids that was just terrified of speaking in public. You know what I'm talking about? And so she had to get, but everyone had to do it, so she had to get in front of the class, and she gets in front of the class, she's giving this book report, and in the midst of this book report, she loses control of all functions, all functions. So below her is like this puddle, right? In the middle of third grade. And I know I'm not supposed to do this in a sermon, but this is what happened. And she was terribly, terribly embarrassed. I was embarrassed for her, everyone's embarrassed. And I don't know that she came back to school the next year. I don't know if it was because of that, but I could see it being because of that. And I think about that story because some of you can really relate to Lisa can't you? I mean, even, even as adults, the idea of getting in front of people and speaking like I'm doing right now is like terrifying to you. Some of you, you've run companies, like multi, multi-million dollar companies. You run board meetings, no problem. But the idea of getting in front of people publicly and speaking is just kind of something that terrifies you. And even if you're not like that, I actually think that most Christians are like that when it comes to talking about Jesus. You know how I know? Because I swear, once every three weeks, one of you, and you're going to think that I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about you, but I am talking about all of you. Because one of you comes up and you're like, you know, I got to introduce you to my friend. Because they really need to talk to you. I, I mean, I, I can't answer their questions. They're asking these questions. They want to know about Jesus. And so they need to talk to you. And so I, I want you to, to meet them. So come talk to my friend or come talk to my parent or, or come talk to, to my sibling or something like that. Let me set up a coffee for you. Right. And the sense is, is like, I can't answer questions. You just feel out of your depth in talking about Jesus with a friend or a spouse or a neighbor or a child or a boss, or a colleague. Why is talking about Jesus so hard? I think one of the reasons it's so hard is because we feel out of our depth. And I think this man who was born blind, who Jesus heals, can relate. Because in verse 13 we learn that after he's been healed and he's in, interrogated by his neighbors, the neighbors bring the man, quote, to the Pharisees. Now, if you don't know anything about the Pharisees, the Pharisees were some of the most educated people of the day. They were the religious leaders, but they weren't religious leaders like religious leaders today. They were actually highly esteemed and very popular. And so, you have to think, these are the public intellectuals of the day. And these are the people that the neighbors bring the man to. And then, when they bring the man to these public intellectuals, they start interrogating him. Could you imagine? Well, some of you can. Because you've been in the classroom. You've been in the classroom where the professor starts asking questions. Questions that are meant to make people who believe what you do feel silly or illogical or like you don't make any sense. And sometimes they'll ask you directly, or does anyone believe this? 
Or maybe if it's not a professor in a classroom, maybe it's someone's parent. And they've read some books and they start asking you some questions and you just feel out of your depth. Or maybe you're talking to that grad student at an R1 research university or at an Ivy League school and they've had some classes on religion and they start bringing up things that are way beyond your knowledge or anything that you know about and, and, and these things are, are meant to dismiss you and sometimes they do dismiss you as being hopelessly naive. And you just feel out of your depth. And even if you haven't had that experience, maybe you've just been in a Bible study or leading a Bible study. So I want to ask you a question about the text you're studying. You're like, man, that's a good question. Maybe because they're not, they didn't grow up in the church. They didn't grow up as a Christian. They have a fresh set of eyes on the text. And when they have a fresh set of eyes on the text, they start asking questions that you overlooked and you never asked before. Like, well, how many angels were there at the tomb? And wait, so did John the Baptist die this way or this way? And all those people that, you know, it's talk about, like, in, when, in the books of, like, Judges and Samuel, like, how were there that many people that were there at that time? How was the population that big? And you're like, I don't know. And you feel out of your depth. This man, I'm sure, felt out of his depth because in verses 14 through 16, he gets caught right in the middle of this big debate. When he's introduced to the Pharisees, they find out that the healing that takes place was on the Sabbath. And so what you need to understand is that the Sabbath was a holy day in Judaism, and it was a day on which there was not to be done any work, including, you know, making mud and, and kneading mud and kneading dough and putting it on someone's eyes and healing them. And so they're sitting there thinking, wait, wait, did this happen on the Sabbath? If this happened on the Sabbath and this man worked on the Sabbath, then he couldn't be from God. Some people said that. They were prioritizing the fact that he was breaking the Sabbath. Jesus was breaking the Sabbath according to their understanding understanding. But then there was another group of people, and they were prioritizing the fact that Jesus had done something that was like not normal. I mean, yes, there are lots of people who claimed to be miracle workers, but, but this guy actually performed a miracle, and it was verifiable. And not just any miracle. He healed a man who was blind. Now, if you look throughout the Bible, healing blind people is like a rare thing, very rare thing. It's so rare that it's supposed to be one of the marks of the age when God sends his Savior to transform the world. What scholars call the Messianic Age. And he not only healed a blind man, he healed a man who was born blind. And so they, prioritizing that, said, well, this man has to be from God. And so here he is, and these actually related to probably two different schools at that time. The, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. It, it's, like you know, it's like the people at Berkeley are debating the people at UCSB. You know what I'm talking about? And these different schools of thought are arguing with one another. And then all of a sudden they look at this man. This division breaks uh, uh, out amongst them in verse 16. And then they look at this man and they draw him in. And they say, what do you have to say about him? Could you imagine? What if you were in that situation? How would you respond? Whose side would you take? 
I mean, you'd probably say, I, I don't know. It's out of my depth. It's above my pay grade. I don't know about these things. But, but notice, notice, he isn't able to do that. Verse 17, it was your eyes he opened. Let me ask you a question. Have you been healed by Jesus? Have you experienced his saving power? Have you encountered him in a way that's been meaningful, that's touched your life and changed your life? Then I have news for you. Your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, they don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from you. You're implicated. It was your eyes that he healed. And so they want to hear from you. They want to hear about your experience. Not my experience, not an expert experience, your experience. And so you see, if you have been healed by Jesus, then you are implicated. You can't get away from talking about Jesus. See, that's the thing about bearing witness. We can't really avoid it. So what would you say? What does he say? Verse 17, he says, he's a prophet. But they're not really, they're not really satisfied with that answer. So a little later on, they come back to him, verse 24, and they press him a little further. They say, so for a second time, they call the man who has been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What they're saying when they say, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner, they're saying, come on, tell the truth before God, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Fess up, we know this man's a sinner, go ahead and say it yourself. You have to understand the logic that's going on here. You see, their, on their understanding, it's pretty simple. Just because someone performs a miracle does not guarantee that that person or that thing is from God. You can look throughout books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and it's clear that there, are such, there is such a thing as false prophets, and that false prophets do such a thing as miracles. You can go to the Exodus story, and you can see that even, even Pharaoh's counselors and magicians can turn staffs into snakes. And so the very presence of a miracle does not verify the fact that it is from God. So how do you know if it's from God or not? Well, how do you know it's from God or not is whether or not the person is a sinner. So here's what I want you to understand about this when this man gets in this, this conversation with them. They had the winning argument. If, on their understanding of the Sabbath, Jesus is a sinner, if he is a sinner and he is on their understanding of the Sabbath, then whatever miracle he performed is undermined and it shows that he's a false prophet. It actually means that he's, he's worse and more dangerous than we thought. They were right about the argument. But they were wrong about Jesus. And that's the thing. You can have all the rationale. 
you can have all the depth of theological insight and knowledge and learning. And you can still not know Jesus. You can still be wrong about Jesus. Just because their arguments are stronger does not mean that they know God. And so he answers them. When they press them, he answers them and he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. I love that response. Because you see what this man is doing? He's sticking to what he knows. And that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good way to lead. When you're talking to somebody about Jesus, stick with what you know. Not what you don't know. You know, whether or not we count the last zero on the Canaanites and, uh, and, the, and the Israelites or, or the last zero is an indicator that these were armies, I don't know. Whether or not John the Baptist died this way or this way or what he did with the silver, I don't know. But one thing I do know, he sticks with what he knows. One thing I do know. That though I was blind, now I see. It's a pretty good response. One thing I do know is he healed me. There's a, um, there was a debate that was held mid-90s between a Christian philosopher named Greg Bonson and an a biologist named Gordon Stein. It happened at the University of California, Irvine. And if you listen to that debate or read that debate, I mean, it's a debate. So they are talking a mile a minute. And these, these men are like arguing one with another. And it's very kind of, very technical. And they're speaking really fast. And it's in front of a university audience. But the most poignant moment in that debate is when the atheist Gordon Stein asked Greg Bonson, is God good? And Greg Bonson responds very quickly, he is. And then Gordon Stein says, how do you know God is good? And then Greg Bonson, who has been talking a mile a minute, slows down and says this. He saved me. He created me. He made the world and he made it good. He sent his son into the world to die for my sins. Many of these evidences are quite convincing to me, but I don't use them outside of a worldview in which they make sense, in which they're taken as true. One thing I do know, he made me, he saved me. I was guilt-ridden and now, and now I know that I'm covered and loved. I was restless with anxiety, but now I know that I have a peace in the middle of the storm. I was completely dissatisfied in life, and now I've got this kind of provisional satisfaction in the midst of the dissatisfaction and a hope, because before I was meaningless, but now I realize that my life and the things that God has given me to do bears meaning. Even my suffering has meaning. Here's what I know. I was blind. And now I see. They press him again, verse 26, and he responds, verse 27, I, I have 
told you already, you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? I love it. Some of you are in here and you are investigating claims of Christianity. And you're coming with lots of questions. And I want to say, welcome. We are so glad you're here. We want this to be a space where you can ask your questions. But I want you to to consider what this blind man is getting you to consider. Why are you asking your questions? You see, some questions are meant to learn. Some questions are meant to find out. Some questions are meant to investigate the truth so that you can find the truth and know the truth. Other questions are meant to combat. Other questions are meant to prove wrong. Other questions are meant to stump. And the question that he is asking us to consider is which kinds of questions are you asking and why? Do you want to be his disciple? Are you even interested in that? Is that why you're asking your questions? In the midst of this, this man, he, he gives testimony. He talks about Jesus. He bears witness, even though he's out of his depth. But it's not just that he's out of his depth. You know, talking about Jesus is also difficult because talking about Jesus, we know, can bear repercussions, negative repercussions. And we see that too in this text. That one of the reasons that talking about Jesus is so hard is because there can be negative consequences. In verse 18, a section of the passage that we didn't read, the man's parents enter the picture. They call him because they want to verify who this is. In verse 19, they ask the parents, the neighbors, they say, Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? And notice how the parents respond. We know he is our son. We know that he was born blind. We can bear witness about our son. We can talk about our son. But how he can see now? Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And you say, well, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they weren't there. They knew. Everyone knew. And we know that they knew because John tells us in verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. See, why did they not bear witness about Jesus? Because they knew that talking about Jesus would have negative repercussions. They could be put out of the synagogue. Now, If you don't know, the synagogue was the center of Jewish social life. The synagogue was the place where you got your community. The synagogue was the place where you went to for help when you were in trouble. The synagogue was the social safety net. There wasn't a welfare system in that day. The synagogue was where you networked to find work and to find and to where you actually were able to have economic gains because of that network. And they, they were going to be put out of synagogue. It's something that they were not willing 
to undergo to bear witness to Jesus. But he was. Because after he bears witness to Jesus, notice what happens. Verse 28. They revile him. They hurl insects, salts at him. Next thing that they do is they... They claim that he is betraying his heritage and his history. They say, we are disciples of Moses, verse 28. You are a disciple of this man. In other words, you are not a disciple of Moses. What they're saying is, if you follow Jesus, then you are no longer following Moses. And then you are no longer of us. You're not one of us. You're betraying your family. You're betraying your parents. You're betraying your history and your heritage. You're a traitor. And then they shame him, verse 34. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And finally, they shun him. They cast him out. I was recently reminded of some of the suffering our brothers and sisters endure across the world. A Chinese-born pastor who's planting a church here in Orange County, here in California, in Orange County, he told a story of his friend who's planting a church in Shanghai. And he said that every week, just like in our worship service, at this worship service, the volunteers and the staff members gather around to pray for the service. It's a pretty common occurrence. It's very ordinary. Lots of churches do it. But the prayer that they pray around that circle was not ordinary. Because every week they pray this. God, give us one more Sunday. Give us one more Sunday to glorify the name of the triune God. Give us one more Sunday to preach the good news about Jesus. Give us one more Sunday to baptize new believers in his name. Give us one more Sunday to extend the grace of Jesus to those who do not know him. Give us one more Sunday because they know that that Sunday could be their last. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted all you know that 5,621 Christians is recorded or killed for faith related reasons in the last year 15 Christians are killed every day for their faith on this day October 22nd it's estimated that 360 million Christians will experience high levels of persecution. That's one in seven. Christians are facing severe persecution today and each Sunday, 200 churches in China are harassed and wondering if this day will be their last day to gather for worship. Those who understand the gospel of John, know that John was writing so that in the roughly 80s and 90s AD, so that Jewish Christians or Jews 
will become believers in Jesus the Messiah. And when he wrote this story, John wrote it in such a way so that they knew that when they professed Jesus is Lord and Messiah, they knew that the same thing that happened to this man was going to happen to them. That they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. Believing in Jesus Christ and identifying with him and bearing witness to him it risks negative repercussions. And even if we don't live in China or in the Middle East or somewhere else, we still face these repercussions here in our own way. I mean, we know what it's like and can know what it's like and risk being ridiculed by colleagues or thought less of. The amount of people that I talk to who won't even consider Jesus and the claims of Christianity because they know that to become a Christian means that their family and their friends will view them as disloyal and rejecting their cultural heritage and rejecting their family. And so they won't even consider it. And I can't tell you the amount of people that I've talked to who are in that situation. We are disciples of Moses, and you are disciples of this man. You are no longer of us. You're being disloyal. See, we know this today, and we know what it can mean to be cut out of our communities and opportunities and networking. It's hard to bear witness about Jesus, so why would we bear witness about Jesus? I think the text gives us a couple reasons. Here's the first. We bear witness about Jesus because talking about Jesus means coming into a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is. There's a progression in this text. I don't know if you noticed it. In the text that we studied a couple weeks ago, when this man first talks about Jesus in verse 11, he calls him the man they call Jesus. In other words, Jesus is simply a man and he simply has this common name. Jesus was a very common name in the ancient world. In other words, when they're like, who is Jesus? He's like, I don't know. He's like, that guy they call John? That guy. That dude. But we go a little later in the text as he starts bearing witness and as he starts this dialogue with the Pharisees. And in verse 17, he moves a little farther and he says, well, this guy, Jesus, he's a prophet. Okay, but lots of people were prophets. Josephus was a prophet. I mean, Anna was a prophet. There are lots of prophets. But, but then we go a little further in verse 33, and he says that he is not just a prophet, but he is a special prophet. He's a prophet sent from God. Because he said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But then when we get to the end of the text in verse 38, the section that we will look at next week in more detail, what happens? He stands before Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. Now, do you hear the progression? He goes from, I don't know, he's just some guy that they call Jesus to being fully convinced 
that the one who stands before him is God in the flesh and he worships him. And how did he become convinced of that? He bore witness. Do you want to grow in your confidence about who Jesus is and what he's done for you, for me, for the world? Start talking about him. Some of us have lost confidence in who Jesus is and we're starting to doubt who he is for us and for the world. Could it be because we've stopped talking about him and because we've stopped talking about him, we have not seen how he shows up when people simply bear witness to who he is. I don't know about this and I don't know about that, but one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And notice, by the way, that he gains this confidence even though his bearing witness was, as far as we can tell, unsuccessful. They don't all say like, oh, yes, you're right. We were wrong. They kick him out. And in the midst of that, though, he still becomes more sure of who Jesus is. That's one reason I think that we should talk about Jesus because, and bear witness to who he is because talking about Jesus is a means to coming into a deeper knowledge of who he is. But there's a second reason, and that's simply this, that the Lord knows who we're his. After this man is cast out of the synagogue, after he is shunned, verse 35 tells us that Jesus heard about this and found him. And found him. Last week, we looked at John 10, and Nick talked about how Jesus is the good shepherd. There, when Jesus is talking about how he's the good shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10, verse 14. I know my own, and my own know me. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And Jesus heard about this, and he found him, because he knows his own. And he goes after his own. And he cares for his own. I want you to consider the situation of this blind man. He lived in a time when there was no braille. There was no voice command. There were no audio books. There were no handicapped accessible buildings. There was no walking man at the sidewalk at the corner that you pressed and a beeping sound came on. There were no white cane sticks that you used to walk around. There was none of that. So what was this man to do? He was there relegated to begging in one place. And in one day, in one day, he gained everything. He gained his sight he gained access to the community. He gained agency where he could now have a job and gainful employment and work for himself and care for himself. He gained the ability to communicate with others. He gained the ability to navigate the world. He gained all of that and then he lost it all on the same day when they kicked him out of the synagogue. He gained everything that he had wanted probably his whole life and been desiring. He gained everything and then he lost everything. But then he gained one thing, the thing that mattered most. He gained Jesus. Who stood before him and found him. 
He gained the good shepherd. And that's the one thing that's worth everything. I was talking to somebody over breakfast this week, and we were talking about like what matters in life, like what really matters in life. And he recalled this section in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And he was reading, and, and in there, Packer is talking about the high privilege that it is that we as creatures get to know the living God. That even as sinners, we get to know the one who is the source of all life and beauty and goodness. And not only just know about him, but we get to know him. He, he calls us friend and beloved and spouse. We get to know the living God. And he talked about what a high privilege that is. And Packer said, in light of that, everything that doesn't actually bring us closer to knowing this God, everything that doesn't bring us closer to knowing this God is worthless. But anything, anything that brings us closer to knowing him, to this high and holy privilege of knowing the creator of the universe and the lover of our souls, well, that's priceless. I had a friend who just recently taught a seminary course in Africa. After he left, one of the men who he taught had a family, wife, kids, was arrested He's there in jail, and as he's in jail, the church starts sending around prayer requests and praying that he would get out and for his release and that they would do everything possible, asking people to do anything they possible that they could to advocate for him and for his release. When the man heard about this, he wrote back and he said, hey, I'm in here bearing witness and I'm seeing a lot of fruit. And Jesus is showing up in some powerful ways and I'm experiencing him in some powerful ways and I don't know that I'm supposed to get out. I don't know that I want to get out. Why would we bear witness? Because bearing witness brings us closer to Jesus. And because the one that we bear witness about, he bears witness about us. When Satan tempts you to despair, he bears witness. They are mine. At the great white throne of judgment, he bears witness. That one is mine. I paid for him. I paid for her. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. Jesus bears witness for you and for me. And so in the words of Hosea 6.3, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn, and he will come to us at the showers as the spring rains that water the earth. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us to know you. So open our lips, O Lord, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.